Two Bibles. It's a new new edition. So on page 262, you can find it in the in the blue Bibles in front of you. We are in our Advent series talking about Jesus' dysfunctional family, looking at the line of Christ from Matthew chapter 1. And one of the astonishing things we see is that it seems like Matthew's gone out of his way to include what we would consider embarrassing stories. To, to point out that there's something wrong with us, to, to increase our longing for this Messiah to come, to make everything right that is wrong with this world. And so today we're going to look at Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It's a brutal inclusion that's highlighted because Jesus is the greater David. Right? And we're supposed to see that that's what Matthew is doing. Is he lists all these names to say that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the true Israel. He's the son of David, the true and better king. And he's the one to whom all these people point to. And so let's read it. This is going to start from misery, but it will lead to joy. This is a good, a good text. Let's learn about David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll read the whole chapter. Hear now God's word. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof, from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did not you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the for forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. 
Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us, and it's absolutely true. Let's pray. Father, we just read a sobering passage about how one of your servants, who we would perceive as one of your greatest servants, um, fell. And so I pray that you would use this text, this example, um, to show us the depths of the sin in our heart, but also to show us the wonder of grace, the wonder of your mercy. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here to open our eyes, to restore unto us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, this, this whole passage is a mess, <laughs> a heartbreaking mess, because it doesn't take much imagination to see that these kinds of actions are repeated all around us in our world today, uh, adultery, unfaithfulness. Um, I mean, as I was preparing for the ministry, I, have, I know at least two mentors to me, one digital that I never got to meet and another uh, personal, a friend, who fell in this way. And that's why he called it a moral failure. You know, if, you know, there's betrayal, there's anger, there's grief, there's how in the world could you do such a thing? And then there's our theology trying to kick in and say, I know everyone's a sinner, but really, how could you do this? And then there's the fallout, all the consequences of the people who are involved in the situation who are obviously hurt, and a much more extreme case here with David. Right, and so, I mean, the question really is, if somebody like David, who's been called a man after God's own heart, uh, somebody who, who wrote a pile of psalms that portrayed just this, this passionate zeal for his God, I love to do your law, O Lord, he wrote, which is ironic in light of this passage. If he can throw everything away like that in a moment, what about us? Because David's faith is legendary. I mean, he is the pinnacle, I think you could argue, of, of Old Testament faith. 
in the way he expresses it and talks about God. He, he gives us a language to even know how to communicate with God because of his intimacy with God even before Christ came. I mean, this is the giant slayer, the poor shepherd boy who rose from nothing to be king. He's the warrior, he's the captain, he's, he's the man who inspires others to bleed for him, to die for him. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was a guy who, who had exceptional talent with the sword, who would fight for David, who would live out in the caves with David in, in the past. I mean, this is a guy... David, who's seemingly at the top, who should be, have more than enough. And yet in one moment, he threw everything away. I mean, he's arrived. He's the king of Israel. God's promised David, from you, one of your children, will be the Messiah. There will be a king. on the, It's going to be the throne of David forever. And David's just blown away by the grace. He says, who am I that you would treat me with such kindness? And then he falls. I mean, he looks at David has wives, he has power, he has fame, he has fortune, he has everything we all live for. And he throws it all away to have another man's wife and then does despicable things to hide it. Destroyed by its desire. And so the question this morning is, that we want to look, look at, is why did he do this? And then how does God lead us from places like this into his joy? Because this really is, even though it look, it's bleak, it's dark, it really is a message. It's included in the Christmas story. It doesn't say Bathsheba, she is called the wife of Uriah, son of David. We're, we're supposed to remember this as we think about the birth of Jesus. And so we're going to look at two points here. I'm going to try and be shorter because we've already seen a sermon acted out in the baptism. But how did, why did David fall? And then how does God restore, restore men and women who've fallen this far back into his joy? Now, I know you're wondering, how's this mess about joy? But one of the things that's fascinating as you read Psalm 51 David's famous confession of sin in the aftermath, how he's responded to everything that happened. David prays, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And just listen carefully. It didn't say that David lost his salvation. David's saying he lost his joy. He did all these things as a believer, as a follower of God. As somebody who, who would say theologically, I believe that God is real, he is just, he is faithful, he is mercy. He could answer, give all the good Bible answers. It says he lost his joy. He got bored with God, the one whom he appeared to be most passionate about. I mean, so the fire of passion, it was kind of like uh, putting a... a a lid on a candle. The flame was slowly snuffed out, and you find him at the beginning of this chapter. Not He's just gave, given up on fighting for his joy, fighting for the kingdom of God. He doesn't feel like going to war. He's staying at home. You find him on the couch. And so instead of looking for God's beauty, he saw Bathsheba, and his heart was stricken, and it was like a whole series of dominoes as he thought he could find joy in this one particular person rather than God. And it only brought him misery. 
And so underneath this horrific moral failure is David's own words, basically, that I got bored with God. I lost my joy and my salvation, and therefore I was vulnerable. I got bored with grace, you could say. He got bored with church, with worship. He got bored with the blood of the Lamb, to use the Old Testament language. And if that can happen to somebody this pious, this is the humbling part. I mean, if somebody is in the ministry, I mean, to anybody, you just have to be human. If you can, can be this pious, this passionate about God, and then, and then lose it. Right, what about us? So look at what he did. During the time when kings go to war, which is a slam on David, he stayed home. And so while men are bleeding, fighting, and dying, it says David's on his couch. He's not even home for a good reason. He's, he stays at home to Netflix and chill. <laughs> and so he gets off of the couch. He goes out to the roof, and we don't really know why, but he's just looking around, and he sees Bathsheba, and, and it's like his heart is struck, and this whole thing just happens. So one innocent decision to go to the roof changed his life forever. It eventually tears apart his family. It tears apart his kingdom. It's terrible. And so... What happens is he sees Bathsheba, she's beautiful, he gets the servants involved in his sin, he sends them to get her, she ends up pregnant, the servants are the go-between, so they know exactly what's going on, and along comes the message a little bit later that she's pregnant, and so now he's got to fix what he just did. He tries to hide it, and so he summons Uriah, her husband, home with the, the goal that maybe they won't notice, you know, maybe the world won't notice, Bathsheba will know, the servants will know. But he has this awkward conversation with him. I mean, you can imagine it. You're fighting for your life. And you've got blood, sweat, and tears. And the king comes, calls you and says, okay, how's, the war, how's Joab doing? <laughs> how are the people? How's the war going? I mean, how would you ex what, would, what would you expect him to say? It's bloody and violent. One side's winning or the other, but... And so David sends him home as a reward, essentially. And Uriah is too holy. He's too, uh, too good. He shows that he is a, has higher ethics in this moment than David. And he refuses to go home to have comfort when his men are suffering. And so since David can't hide it this way, he says, all right, now I'm going to send messengers. And basically what we would say is give him concrete sneakers. Make sure he disappears. And so he sends Uriah back to the front with a message send him into the heat of battle so that he will die. And Uriah is killed, and after Bathsheba is done grieving, David takes her for his wife, and they have a son. And if you stop and think about it, if you had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, it would look like David had done a noble thing. He saw a grieving widow, uh, the wife of one of his men, who fought for him valiantly, and he brought her into his home to care for her so that she was not alone. But it ends with this haunting statement that what David had done displeased the Lord. The servants knew that God knew. And so here's what we learned from this. We're going to see three things. You've got to see the seductive power of sin as we look at this pious man. You see the subtle sin of sloth. That's what's going on here. And then you're going to see that we have a desperate need for joy. Because look at it. 
before talking about why David fell, you got this guy who's saying, I love the Lord. I love his law. I love, the Lord is my shepherd. He's so filled my heart, I have no wants, no needs, no desires. And he just knocked down all Ten Commandments, you think you could argue, in one swoop. And so if David can be seduced by sin, what about us? And what it's teaching us is the very humble and humiliating, really. It's a humble teaching that anybody and everybody, if you're in the right circumstances, can do anything. We're capable of any kind of moral evil if we are put in the right circumstances. It's, it's the human propensity to screw everything up. <laughs> it lies dormant in my heart. Uh, it lies dormant in yours. I mean, that, that's what this Advent series is all about. If you think about it, let's look at all the names in the Old Testament who, who've experienced this great kindness from God. Noah ends up drunk. Moses has an anger problem. He murders an Egyptian. He, he's too angry to even be allowed into the promised land. Peter, go to the New Testament, he denies Jesus three times. Paul is a religious extremist, a fundamentalist, a murderer, a terrorist. David is a wife thief and a murderer. And this is how David confesses it. This is Psalm 51.5. This is the same guy who says, Behold, look, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. What David says, you know what wrong? Went, what went wrong? I sinned against you, Lord. This is my fault. This is my decision. I did these things. I wanted to do these things. Against you only have I sinned. And I was born that way. I despised your name. It was my choice. But he also says, there's something so deeply wrong with me. It actually started at conception. He's not pushing blame and saying, I was born this way, so let me off the hook. No, he says, this is a moral decision. This is a moral failure. This is something I absolutely did. It's, I destroyed lives. But most of all, I despise the Lord I love. I was born in iniquity, born to care only about me, separated from my God. And so what David is saying, he's just, we call it total depravity. The iniquity is the word describing the human condition. Why Jesus had to come. It's our natural propensity, uh, our natural desires to screw things up. <laughs> our desires lead us to me make a mess of our lives, of other people's lives because of the decisions we make. But also because there's something in the human heart that's curved inward, as Luther would say, that we can't help it. That because of our iniquity, we're far too easily seduced by sin. And so this is the teaching. I am capable of doing what David did, just as you, uh, you are, because of the monster lurking in the dark in my heart. Do you believe that? Because it's when we become complacent and think we can never do such a thing. That's when we get caught. Because when we think we're too smart, too moral, too spiritual, too fill-in-the-blank, that's when we're vulnerable. 
And yet this is the description of human beings throughout all of human history. Think about it. Here's John Bunyan. This is the 1800s. Author of Pilgrim's Progress. He said, you know, I was winding and shrinking under the burden that was upon me, and it didn't, didn't seem like I could go anywhere to get writ to find rest or to find quiet. This burden pursued me wherever I go. Here's a psychologist from, from the 1900s, William James. He says, normal life, he's talking to all kinds of people, normal life is filled where these insane moments where radical evil just has its moments and takes over. And then the modern-day theologian Pink, <laughs> musician. I'm a hazard to myself. Don't let me get me. I mean, they're just echoing what David said. There's something in the human heart that I can't stop chasing what I want. That sin lurks, it creeps, there's a darkness. And so we have to see as we jump into this, as you think about Christmas and you think about joy, that we are absolutely capable of doing what David did. We, we have all kinds of systems in our heart and in our minds that keep us from doing such things, because what, what will other people think? These, are, these help us, right? But if you're alone and no one's looking and you're on the roof, what are you looking for? What are you looking at? So we do find ourselves restless, bored. That, that's what David teaches us, that the most pious man is not able to sustain a life where he finds his joy only in God. And this is what leads us to the second point here, the, the subtle sin of sloth. Why did David do this? We tend to think it, it's normally a story told about lust, but I want you to see that right alongside of lust was, the, was this picture of sloth. It's one of the seven deadly sins. And I know, kids, you think of sloth as this creature that's really slow and deliberate, and we think of couch potatoes, you know, you can't get the Dorito into your mouth, it just sits on your chest. It's gross. <laughs> oh, it's sloth is a joy, restless joylessness. David's on his couch, but he's not, he's not lazy. He's still active. He's just active pursuing the wrong things. Sloth is an attitude. This is, this is what one other... Um, this is what Dorothy Sayers says, that sloth isn't just idleness of mind and being lazy. It's a whole poisoning of your will, which starts with, I just don't care right now. And then it extends to re refusing joy and culminates in morbid introspection and despair, which is her way of saying, sloth is about us waking up one day and saying, I just don't feel like it. And that's going to shape everything I do. No, I can't do it anymore. I don't want to go to church. I don't see the point. I'm tired of fighting. You know, I see that thing. I want it. I'm I just don't want to fight it anymore. It's sloth. It's, we think of something slow, but it's actually sneaky coming in the back door. It comes along. Everything we do. Right. Some, some Christians in the past would say that sloth is a kind of weariness that invades our whole being so that we just don't feel like trying to follow God anymore. And one of the interesting things that I was, as I was preparing for this is that you don't have to be 
Some of the people that fight sloth are in the most lonely situations <laughs> that would appear to be the most busy for God. So here's an example from the 4th century from some monks. Right, you think of people pious and holy who would, should not have a problem with sloth because they've put their minds to separating themselves from the world in the desert. Because how are you going to get in trouble in the desert? There's nothing there. And this is how John Cassian, the 4th century theologian, describes these monks. So you think about it. You're, you're called to find joy in God, and they're, they're trying to pray. They're trying to do these things. And he says, Sloth compels the monk to look constantly towards the windows, uh, to jump out of the cell, <laughs> to escape their private time with God, to watch the sun, to see how close it is to, to the ninth hour. Yeah. Is it time to get off work yet? Sloth instills in him a dislike for the place where I'm at, for manual labor. Uh, sloth causes the idea that gets love to disappear from among the brothers and there's no one there to help him, full of self-pity. It leads him to desire for other places where he can find somebody to meet his needs, to pursue a trade that's easier, more productive. And he adds that pleasing the Lord is not a question of being in a particular place. For scripture says you can worship God wherever. I mean, you get this picture that even these guys who are up here spiritually, from our perspective, they struggle to find a joy when they're alone with God. And what David shows us, and when you get bored with God, you are vulnerable to all kinds of lusts and desires and destruction because if I'm bored with God, I'm going to start looking for joy elsewhere. And if I can't find joy in the church, in, in his salvation, in God's presence with me, I'm going to start looking for the love and affection of my neighbors, somebody else's wife, um, my job, my family. See, sloth is this subtle, sneaky thing. It's terrifying. So where do you, how do you get this joy? Because really, this is our world, right? We, are, we live in a world where we should be the most happy people in all of human history because we are the most comfortable. We're right there with David. We have more wealth, more power, uh, more romance, more of anything than anyone else in human history as Westerners. And to quote uh, C.K. Lewis, everybody has everything and nobody is happy. <laughs> People who died at 30 found greater joy than we do. I mean, you'll see it this Christmas. We'll get our kids, we'll spend all kinds of money to buy them all these wonderful toys and they'll enjoy them. And please do enjoy them. <laughs> but in a couple of weeks, they're going to be just as excited about that rock or stick they find outside. Right? I mean, sloth sneaking in. Why is it that as we as kids, we can look and wonder and awe at God's creation, just an earthworm slowly crossing the sidewalk. And this is, this is my little boy. And we can say, God made that. And he says, this is amazing. You know, look at this thing. Put it in his pocket. <laughs> and then as we get old, we stop seeing. We lose our joy. And the same thing happens with us as Christians. Is we start to hear week in and week out that God loves us. He forgives us. And we, Jesus bled for you. He gave his life for you. And we go, I don't feel like it. Or I, I can't feel it. Sloth leads to despair and self-loathing. 
because we recognize our unhappiness, we chase it, and it leads us to misery, as it did to David. Now, how does God restore our joy? Because this is, this is really the underlying theme here. David lost his joy, he pursued his joy, and he was slayed by sloth and lust. How does God get joy back? How does he keep, keep us keeping on to persevere when we don't feel like it? Because we all get there. I mean, as a pastor, this, is, this would be my, my request for you to pray for me, that I, to, that I would not lose the joy of my salvation. Because whether I feel like it or not, every week I have to stand here and tell you God is great. <laughs> Which is a dangerous thing. Because you can think I'm fine, and I can hide it. Right. So how does God restore our joy? I mean, I can think the same thing of you as a parishioner. And here's what he does. He makes us miserable with mercy. Just think about it. David wanted to get joy, and he ended down here in mercy. And God says the way to get joy is you first have to be, be miserable as you see your need for mercy. And how it worked for David is he sent Nathan, the prophet. He sent someone else to wake him up. This is 2 Samuel 12. Nathan was sent to David, and Nathan tells David this story. David has a guilty conscience, and you see it here. He says, there were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he, it grew up with him, and it was his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or his herds to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity, no compassion. And Nathan turned to David and said, You are the man. That's humbling. This is how God works. It's counterintuitive. As he sends messengers into our lives to show us that we need mercy. Because if you look at Nathan, he's in a dangerous spot. He's coming to the king and trying to show him his sin. And if David gets mad, Nathan could just be thrown out. He could be killed to be executed and put on a spike to tell everyone, don't you dare confront the king. But because he's sensitive, because he's guilty, as we often are, he gets mad at someone else's injustice and wants to look like a good guy. And he explodes and says, kill that guy. And Nathan says, well, guess what? That's you. You were a thief. And David wakes up. He comes to his senses, so to speak, and says, I sinned against the Lord. And so how does God restore us to joy he sends people in our lives to show us that we need God's mercy. To make us be honest. To, how, do you know how to do that? Do you know how to make yourself miserable with God's mercy that leads you into the place of joy? Right, don't stop there, because just making yourself miserable, that's called self-loathing. Right, that's, that's hating yourself. It's the wrong center of gravity. Right, you would be able to look around and say, look at what God has given me, a life, a home, friends, family. He's blessed me with all these things, with salvation, with grace. And we have to say, I, I too have this, 
sloth slowly creeping in my heart. And God says, look long and hard at my mercy. That's what Christmas is about. We sang it this morning. Did you hear it? God rest you, merry gentlemen. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. It's tidings of comfort and joy. To make us miserable with mercy to lead us into the joy of God's salvation. And here's how it happens. You don't stop there. You got to run to the person who is mercy. Because David is this picture of the king who threw everything that God gave him away for a moment of self-absorbed bliss and then tried to hide it and cover it up and it caused all kinds of destruction. But Jesus, the greater David, is the king who had everything, who fought, who didn't give up, who didn't get restless, he didn't get, he didn't lose his joy in God. I mean, Jesus is the true king who had everything and gave it up, came down to earth to fight, who didn't take a time out to sit on his couch to just look out for something, something else to do because life is boring. No, he said, I am here on a mission. And nothing's going to keep me from saving you to give you your joy. You know the place in Matthew 4 where Jesus goes, is taken, he's tempted. He's tempted to do this. Satan brings him up on a high mountain and says, look, you can get fame, you can get fortune, you can get power. All the kingdoms of the earth can be yours if only you would worship me. You can have power, fame, and authority without suffering. Just call me your father. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I worship the Lord and him only. He fought. He didn't give in to temporary joy. He fought against sloth. Why? Because he had this deep joy that kept pushing him. You know, that's what Hebrews tell us. Look at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Do you know who his, what his joy was? Not only his father, but you and me. The reason he didn't get bored and restless and lose his joy because you and I, out of faithfulness to his father, were enough of a joy to enable him to suffer briefly, <laughs> suffer an, etern an eternal hell so that we might be in relationship with him. And all he asks in return is that we would be honest about who we are. That's how you make yourself miserable with mercy. Father, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Against you and you only have I sinned. Restore unto me the joy of, of your salvation. That's how we're going to end. It's grace. <laughs> Jesus is a greater David who pursued our comfort above his own so that we could get a taste of that future joy in heaven. And Jesus says, no one can take this permanent love and affection, this joy from you, if you would make yourself miserable with his mercy. God sends Jesus to redeem, we could call the International League of the Guilty, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, who get bored with God and say, look at the blood of the lamb, not this cute fuzzy animal. 
Look at a person, God's own son, and say, your transgressions have been blotted out. They are whiter than snow. Let your broken bones rejoice. It's going to hurt for now, but God will lead you into a place of everlasting joy. So are you bored with God? (laughs) Do you know how to fight for it? One of the things this teaches us is we need other people. That's great that we had members come in. It's more people, more, more allies in the fight against sin, in the fight against our own self-deception. We need other people to come in and say, you are the one. <laughs> but then you also need a relationship with those people that give them the, the place to speak like that. Do you have people in your life like that? I mean, your spouse, of course, but even others. Because we like to hide. And second, I mean, sloth is a skilled adversary. We forget how to be grateful. It's just a weird thing. It's like, it's like cataracts. They come over our eyes and we're unable to see the world as it is and we can't see what we have. We can't see all the good gifts. We lose our awe. Watch some kids. (laughs) This is the application as we just baptized a bunch of children. Learn from them. Look at the joy they have as they experience new things. (laughs) We get to learn that God gives good gifts through their eyes. And lastly, just make it a regular prayer. This is what I was doing this week. Because God, I, I know I need help to see. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Help me to see myself. Protect me from losing my awe. Help me to, to live life as your child. Uh, to, <laughs> to look at your grace the way a four-year-old child looks at an earthworm. And say, this is great. It doesn't get better than this. Right. Against you and you only have I sinned. May God help us. Uh, make us miserable with his mercy to lead us into this great joy that can never be taken away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your brutal honesty here in the scriptures that you tell us to remember the wife of Uriah. And I pray that it, would, it is humbling, but I pray you would help us to be honest about ourselves in light of the cross and that for every look at our failure, we would take ten looks at the cross and that your mercy would lead us to this place where we rejoice, that we see we are your joy and that you look at us as we hear Zephaniah say, You you look at us and sing and rejoice because of your great love for us in Christ. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.